So it's James chapter 4, and we're reading the first 10 verses for the chapter this evening. James chapter 4 and verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust at war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, but he giveth more grace? Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Now that's our, that's our reading this evening. We trust God will bless it as we consider it together. Now it doesn't come as any great surprise to remember or to realise that conflict is often found amongst God's people, amongst Christians. That's true today, but it's always been true. In fact, the New Testament, well, much of the New Testament has that as background. For example, many of the letters and writings of the New Testament were written to deal with conflict, were written to help Christians resolve conflict. For example, the Corinthian letter In that letter, it was evident that the church at Corinth had divided itself into factions, into groups, and these groups were uh, opposed to each other. They were in conflict. And then the Philippian church had a personality conflict in it, and there were two women who couldn't go on, and that was causing problems in the local church. And then the Galatian believers in that district, they were, according to the Apostle Paul, biting and devouring one another. And that's obviously metaphorical. They weren't chewing on each other's legs or anything like that, but they were behaving metaphorically like that and they were destroying each other, they were fighting with each other. Even Paul writing to the Ephesian assembly, that church that has so much to commend, that he begins the practical section from chapter 4 to chapter 6 with an appeal to unity and to tolerance and to love between the members of the assembly. Actually, Paul himself knew something of this on a personal level. And you remember that Paul and Barnabas had a serious disagreement that led to a parting of ways and they no longer served the Lord together because they had a disagreement. There was a conflict between them as individuals. So Paul knew something of this on a personal level. Now, James is writing about that very thing. He's writing about conflict. He's writing about problems. And as he does, I'll just give you a wee outline of these verses In the first three verses, he speaks about the need to have a good look at yourself when there is conflict in which you are involved. So he speaks about judging not other people's motives, but your own motives. So he would, in our terminology, say, have a good look at yourself, first and foremost, if there is conflict 
and you're involved in it. Secondly, and this seems to be a wee bit left field, but he says in verse 4 down to verse number 6, to resolve conflict, stop loving the world. Which you would think initially isn't connected to the subject, but it is actually the key to the subject. And then in verse 7 down to verse number 10, he says, Submit to God and resist the devil. And he has some very sharp things to say in that section. And in fact, we're going to see that there is an alternative 10 commandments in that section. It's actually 10 commands in, the, in these verses. And then verse 11 to verse 12, which I won't deal with, is that to resolve conflicts, we need to stop speaking evil of each other. We need to stop gossiping about each other. And that will go a long way to stop any conflict that we're involved in. So then, verse 1 to 3 speaks about the source of conflict and the need to judge your selfish motives, to look at yourself, first and foremost, should you be involved in conflict. And he describes conflict in this way in verse 1. He says, from where? So he's talking about source. He's talking about identifying where this comes from so that you can deal with it. So that we initially, when we think about conflict, we may be involved in, you go to the end of it, you go to the symptom, or you go to the expression of the conflict, the fight, the issue, the disagreement, the words that have been spoken, or the kind of, the, 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 the end of the thing. But James is saying, don't start there. If you want to resolve conflict, you don't start there. You start by thinking, where did this come from? What's the source of this? What's under the surface? Walk it back, if you like, to source. And if you can deal with source, you'll deal with consequence and you'll deal with the outcome of that source. So he describes this, or he, he poses the question, where do wars and fighting come from? Wars and fighting among you. So two words, wars and fighting. Now the word war, I think is self-evident, it speaks about a prolonged conflict. So a war is something that is not a... A singular thing, it's something that's been going on for a while. And then he says, not just wars, but conflict or fighting. So the fighting would be, that's the word for battle, and that's the separate battles that go to make up the war. So, for example, you've all done history, done history, and you think about the Second World. Not battle, the Second World War. And that Second World War is made up of many battles. So you've got the Battle of Britain, you could go on, you've got the Battle of Alamein, and then you've got right through into the battles of Europe and the Eastern Front, and you've got lots of battles that make up one big war. So he's saying there are two things that you need to try and identify the source of these things. First of all, if you are involved in a long-running series of battles and conflicts that actually has the, has the kind of characteristic of a, of a war. Or if it is just occasional issues, both things. And actually, one leads to another. In 1249, here's a wee quote, a soldier serving in the army of the city of Bologna in Italy deserted to Modena, I think it is, or Modena, Modena, and took with him an old oak bucket used as a water trough for army horses. That's apparently true. Bologna waived her rights to the fugitive, but demanded the bucket. 
The city of Medina refused, and a war broke out which lasted for 22 years. 22 years over a bucket. You see, folk who were fighting that war would never have said they were fighting over a bucket. But if you traced it right back to source, it was all over a bucket. So that then puts a context into what, what are we fighting about? We're fighting about a bucket for 22 years. And one thing leads to another. One battle leads to a war. So that James says, that's happening amongst you. Now remember, this is the first letter that was ever written in the New Testament. So this is early days. This is right at the beginning of Christian testimony. And James is saying there are wars amongst you. You'd hardly think they'd time to get started with fighting, but they had. They must have got at it very quickly in Christian testimony. And he's saying right at the beginning, there are wars amongst you. There's prolonged conflict amongst you. And you're in the first dozen or so years of Christian testimony. So, he says that these wars and conflict, well, he... He really says that they're kind of vicious because he uses vicious language. He uses words like lust, kill, fight, wage war. It's all very violent terminology. And that violent terminology expresses the intensity and destructiveness of this. So this is, this is bad stuff. This is unpleasant stuff. This is the stuff that causes you to be unhappy in relationships. Battles, wars, and fighting. I'll give you another story. And this, um, this is a story of two monks, okay? So these monks apparently had lived in harmony for years, which seems a bit of a stretch, but anyway, they'd lived in harmony for years. One day, one of the monks grew bored with the monotony of their routine. He said, let's do something different. Let's do what the world does. So his fellow monk who had been out of the world for so long, he had no idea what the world did. So he said to the one who had not been out of the world so long, well, what do, what do the world do? And the monk says, they fight. They quarrel. That's what they do. So his brother monk said, how, how did they do that? And he said, I'll show you. See that stone? And he picked up a stone. He says, put it between us. He says, that stone's mine. He says, that stone belongs to me. You've got no right to that stone. The monk who suggested the quarrel paused for reflection and could see where this was going. And he said, that's fine. It's your stone. Keep it. <laughs> and the pair of them walked away, friends. And he was trying to demonstrate that something that actually meant nothing to them suddenly meant something to them because someone claimed it as their own. So the actual issue was not the stone. The issue was the person's attitude towards the stone. It's the bucket in Italy. And very often quarrels and battles and fights have that characteristic. That if you were to say, what is this actually about? It's about something that's not that important but it becomes important because of our attitude towards it. So here in James, he is going to tell us that such wars, such battles, come from within, not from without. 
they have their source internally within us. So he says this in the first three verses, or verse 2 and verse 3. He says, these are lusts that war in your members. You lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have. You cannot obtain. You fight and war. You have not because you ask not. And so you ask and receive not because you ask and miss that you may consume it upon your lust. Three things. Number one, he's going to show us here that one of the causes of conflict amongst Christians is uncontrolled lust. Uncontrolled lust. You lust, you have not. You kill, you desire to have, you cannot obtain. Now that word lust there is the word from which we get hedonist. It is a desire for pleasure. The words in the plural here, and all external conflict in the world he is saying, can be traced back to this. To a tremendous, uncontrollable desire for self-satisfaction within the human frame. There's something in us that strongly desires what pleases us. Strongly desires it. And that drives us. It affects our uh, behaviour. It affects our demeanour. It affects our relationship. And that illustration of the stone is just one expression of it, that suddenly something that is unimportant becomes important because there's a desire within us that expresses itself in that way. Desire for control, a desire for possession, a desire to win over someone, a desire to exalt yourself at someone's expense, a desire to have more than someone else has, even if it doesn't actually matter. Hybert, who says that this word uh, lust here is the express expression of the yearnings of self-love. So this desire to have comes from a love of self because you want to provide for yourself. You want to sacrifice for yourself. You want to exalt yourself. It is self-love and it produces lust, which produces Conflict is uncontrolled. So it's there, but it's not controlled. Secondly, it's also not fulfilled. You lust and you have not. And that's where conflict comes. You kill and you desire to have, but you cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you have not. So it is an unfulfilled lust that leads to conflict. So these desires that are within you, if, they do, if they're not satisfied, leads us into conflict with other people. Now these are general ideas. We'll come to more specifics in a moment. Thirdly, it leads to selfish lusts. And that finds its expression even in our prayer life. So this is true of people that pray, as well as those who don't. Because he says this, he says, verse number two, you fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. So there's a non-praying Christian. But then he says, you do ask and you receive not because you don't ask. Right, you ask amiss. Why? That you may consume it upon your own lusts. So someone who doesn't pray and someone who does pray can actually fall into the same category. And maybe one reason that we fail to pray is it's quite hard to pray for someone that you are in conflict with. Also, you might say, well, I do pray for that individual. And you are in conflict with them, but what do you pray? 
Do you pray, and I, I noted this down, so I get it right. Do you pray that this other individual will repent, see the light, sort himself out, that God will deal with them? Do you pray about their attitude and not your own? Do you just pray that God would somehow deal with them? It's interesting, the Lord Jesus clearly taught that that's a misuse of prayer. He said this, when you pray, you pray this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. You don't pray, my will be done. My will be done. So there's three ways, there are three aspects of where this comes from in the first three verses. Internal. So the first thing, if you're involved in conflict or there's a potential for conflict or in order not to be involved in conflict, the idea is have a good look at yourself, first and foremost. Have a good look at yourself. Generally speaking, there's something there. If you're involved in conflict, it's not 100% and 0%, generally speaking. There's always something there. But then to resolve conflicts, he comes to this other uh, section which seems to be unrelated but isn't. And to resolve conflicts, we cannot love the world. Now what's the connection here? Because he says in verse 4, verse 1, you adulterers and adulteresses, which is very straight language. I mean, after all, in chapter 3 and verse 1, he's saying, my brethren. Chapter 1's the same. It's very um, warm, affectionate language, and now it's not. He says, and the idea is not so much my, you adulterers and adulteresses, but rather it is uh, the adulteress concept that's really here. And he's speaking not about marital infidelity. He's speaking about spiritual infidelity. He's speaking about our relationship with the Lord. Now, why would he speak about that in relation to conflicts I've got? Because he is the key. Here's the key. If my relationship with the Lord is not right, then my relationship with other people will inevitably be dysfunctional. Have to be dysfunctional as a Christian because I'm a spiritual entity at my core, at the very heart of what I am as a Christian. I'm a spiritual entity. And if the spiritual priorities of my life are not right, then my life will not be functioning as it ought to be. It will be dysfunctional, but out of kilter, so to speak. And so when people are not in right relationship with God, with Christ, then all relational conflicts can be rooted back to that key issue, that key problem. So if I'm engaged in spiritual adultery, which is that the core relationship of my life is dysfunctional. My affections are elsewhere. My priorities are elsewhere. And the key core relationship, which ought to be, for me as a Christian, is not functioning correctly, then holistically, me as an individual will not be functioning correctly. So he gets to the very core of the issue. It's like going to the doctor because you've got a sore head, and think, you know, I'd rather just take paracetamol all the time to mask the symptoms so that I can manage the problem rather than going and getting a scan and finding there's a real issue to deal with. So James wants to kind of spiritually put the paracetamol to one side, right? Don't, let's not mask this. Let's get to the very core issue. 
So let's not tinker with our relationship. Let's not try to be nicer. Let's not just try and speak properly. Or, or let's not try and dance around this. James says, let's get to the very core of this. Why do Christians fight with each other? Because they're not walking with the Lord properly. That's why. And that's the hardest issue to deal with. It's much easier to manage relationships by avoiding people or by, I don't know, all the multiple ways that we do that kind of thing. Rather than get to the core root of it. And the core root of it is spiritual adultery, which is actually worldliness. You see, when James speaks of worldliness, he's not talking about patterns of life or things that you do or choices you make in life. That's not worldliness. That's manifestation of worldliness in some cases, but it's not worldliness. Worldliness is where your heart's affections are in the world and not with Christ. That's worldliness. That's defined by James here. He says that spiritual adultery is betraying the Lord. Know you not, he says, that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Now he's going to speak about this friendship with the world. So he's explaining that our key relationship is disturbed when our affection, our friendship, that comes from the Greek word filio, often translated love in the sense of having emotional attachment to or affection for, the strong, settled emotional attachment's the idea. So he's saying your strong, settled emotional attachment is with the world, not with Christ. This is the problem. That's why you can't go on with people. That's why you find the the relationship of one Christian with another Christian or, or one Christian with many Christians difficult. There's something not right here. And it's in your affections. They're misplaced. They're not with Christ. They're with the world. And what does he mean by the world? That is the man-centred, Satan-directed system of this world. The whole system of the world. It can be different ways. You know, people speak about worldliness in terms of, um, you know, the, the entertainment industry, the fashion industry, the sports industry. All these different things. But you know, the problem with actually isolating the, 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 the idea here to one aspect is that you miss so many. I mean, the world of business and politics and, and there's, so many, there's so many things that can capture our affection and displace Christ. Things like religion can displace Christ. Things like routine and rhythms of life and habits of life, which by themselves are innocuous, but you actually love them more than you love the Lord. You would actually step away from the Lord before you step away from them. You see, it's worldliness. It is displacement of affection. It is that settled choice that you make It's enmity with God. And that idea is that you cannot have your affections placed in the world like that and 
have your affections with God. You can. They're mutually exclusive. So as an enemy of God, you, you can't be a friend of God at the same time. And friendship with the world is enmity with God. And he says this, whosoever therefore, in verse 4, will be a friend of the world. Now that whosoever therefore is choice. It means the will of desire, the will of choosing one thing over another. So that you could um, interpret or you could translate this verse as follows. Don't you know that whoever makes a definite choice to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. So it's a deliberate choice you make. And he says, this is the key to the issue. Now he goes further, let me just continue to verse 5 and verse 6 till we get the point, because verse 5 is one of the most difficult verses, so commentators say, in the Bible in terms of interpreting it. There's very, well, there's two or three different ways that it can be read, depending on which translation of the Bible you are reading. And the King James Version uh, has a different perspective in this verse than the uh, ESV and the New King James. The idea is just this, I think. Some scholars say this. The spirit which he has made to dwell in us lusts with envy. So in this sense, the verse is warning against the propensity of our fallen human spirit towards the sin of envy. Now, in favour of this view is the word translated envy there is never used elsewhere of God. But on the other hand, the New American Standard, the ESV, translate, he that is God jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And a variation of that translation takes spirit to refer to the human spirit, not the Holy Spirit, so we could go on. I think the best solution is this, that James is referring generally to Old Testament scriptures in general, which reference God's jealousy for the undivided devotion of his people. God is jealous for his people. It fits the context of the previous verse. When we are spiritually unfaithful to Christ, it stirs the jealousy of God. Stirs his jealousy. He says in verse 6, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he said, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Let me summarise what we've got so far then. Just take this and apply it to yourself. Don't apply it to other people, apply it to yourself. If you're in a relationship, whatever it is, and there's conflict, Whatever it is, it could be someone at your work, actually. It could be a neighbour. could be someone you're in fellowship with in a local church context. Or it could be another Christian who's not in fellowship with you in a local church, but you know them. And you have settled down to a pattern of managing that relationship based on the conviction that they are the principal cause and maintainer of this conflict. It's them. It's them. Now that may be true. That may be true. But James is asking, even if that is true, even if it's true, to consider the shocking possibility that I am also culpable to some extent that I have been 
managing that relationship for self. And actually, when I examine my own heart, it is because the Lord and his interests are not a priority in my life. I've got other interests. You know, I don't want my life disturbed by this relationship. I don't want my peace disturbed. You know, I've got other things I want to be doing that are more important than the Lord. You know, I've got other interests that are more important than him. Other pleasures in this world which may not be overtly sinful. It may not be sinful at all. But they become sinful when they displace Christ because that is adultery. Spiritual adultery. <coughs> so, could it be that that conflict would be helped? It may not be resolved because you may not be the primary mover in the conflict, but could it be helped by us having a look at ourselves, asking the question, wondering, could it be that my affection for the Lord is just not as it should be? Could it be that I am culpable because of that in my um, involvement in that conflict? Maybe, maybe my personality, maybe my response, maybe my uh, attitude, whatever, I don't know. This is what James is saying. But then he moves on in verse number six, because when you get to that point, usually if you've, I mean, if it's been a war, it's been going on for years, or if it's not like that, but if it has been going on for a while, how do you change the dynamic of that relationship? How do you alter the parameters of it? What can you possibly do to adjust it when the other person's behaviour doesn't adjust. It's constant, it's just the same. And it's no better. And it's still problematic. And that may well be the case. Well, I think it's helpful when you look at verse 6 because it says this, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resists the proud but gives grace unto the humble. Well, now he mentions pride. It's never far away when you're talking about relationships. Pride. He giveth more grace. So how do I combat that worldliness that I perhaps have identified in some area of my life? I'm not able actually to do much about this other person. I'm not able to alter the dynamic of their behaviour or, or how they are toward me, but I certainly can alter something to do with myself. But it may well be that that is very, very difficult. How am I actually going to be able to do that? Verse 6 tells us that God gives grace for that very thing. God's grace is the source of my ability to change my interaction, not with that individual, but with the world. And therefore with Christ, to be consecrated to him. And in order for that to take place, I cannot, I cannot go down the path of current kind of psychological um, thinking. Because the Bible's teaching runs contrary to it significantly here. Significantly. Because James is saying, don't look within yourself. Because you won't find the answer there. So he's saying, don't look within yourself for the resources to deal with this particular issue of worldliness, my affections for something over Christ. You will not have within you sufficient resource 
to change that, you won't. You might be able to change your behaviour, but when it comes to your heart's affection, I mean, it's like, okay, there's something you do and you're so caught up with it that actually it's displaced Christ in your life. And that's, so we're on, on point here, okay? So you decide to not do that thing. You know, not go there, not do it, not whatever. Whatever it is with you. Different with me than maybe you, but whatever it is. And you say, you know, I've done something about it. I made the decision, I'm not, you know, and you, you deal with an external symptom of the problem rather than the internal heart of the issue. Well, what happens is this, two or three weeks down the road, you're just back to the way it was. I'm sure we've all experienced that kind of thing. And we've been sincere when we decided to address the issue. And we've been real, but you know what? We just couldn't do it. Wasn't within us. But James isn't asking you to dig deep. James isn't asking you to summon some inner kind of um, integrity or some inner superhuman strength to actually change this. He says God gives you the grace to do it. This comes not from within, comes from without. It's the grace of God. Now, in the world, we often are told to look for solutions to relationship issues. And to look within yourself, to summon up some sort of dormant principle that you haven't actualised yet, and to picture the thing and imagine it, and then if you imagine it enough, it'll actually be easier for you to do it. And there's all sorts of um, principles that people have to try and improve these relationship and conflict issues. When you're a Christian, you're not trying to awake the giant within you. That's the last thing you want to do, is stir that giant within you. The giant of the flesh. You are not wanting to actualise all your talents and potentials which have been lying dormant and you haven't exercised to your fullness. In fact, actually, what you want to do is look to someone else. So you're looking to God and his grace. Paul got the answer for his issue, which is a different issue, but my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. Sometimes faith can be seen as the spiritual equivalent of willpower. So that you want to believe harder. You want to summon up within you the, the desire to trust even more. I'm going to do this. I'm going to trust more. I'm going to believe more. And faith becomes a work. Just believe and you'll get all the answers to your problem. No, actually he says, what you need is God's grace. You need God's help here. You need God's intervention. With respect to your affections, and God gives greater grace than the challenges that we face all around. Listen, I noted this down. Let me run through it. God gives greater grace than the challenge of worldliness, whatever that is to you or to me. He knows our circumstances and he knows how hard they are, but he gives greater grace than hard circumstances. Do we believe that? He gives greater grace than hard, unimaginable challenges. Do we believe, do we believe that he can give greater grace than the mess that I'm in? Whatever that may be. 
Do we believe that there is that from God which will enable me, strengthen me, give me the desire, stir my affections, draw me back to Christ, actually cause Christ to be so attractive to me and desirable to me that I put him first and me second? God's grace, God's unmerited kindness will overcome our weaknesses, our tiredness with spiritual things. Listen, we learn in justification when we got saved, declared to be righteous in salvation, that we could not do that ourselves, we could not save ourselves, but that his grace was sufficient for us in salvation, in justification. But in sanctification, it's the same thing. We relearn that truth consistently, that his grace is sufficient, his power is perfected in our weakness. So that one writer said, that's where the war against worldliness begins with recognising that you don't have the weapons to fight the battle. But for the provision of God, and his weapons are so much more powerful than the weaponry of the world that they are beyond compare. Now that sounds somehow um, almost intangible. God's grace. What does that mean? Does that mean you've got to shut your eyes and and concentrate very hard and somehow God's grace is going to fill your body or some ecstatic type of experience like that? No, it doesn't. Because in the next section, verse 7 to 10, he demonstrates that obedience to God's word is the proper response to God's grace. He gives these ten commands. He does not see the inexhaustible supply of God's grace sweeping you effortlessly along to holiness. The God who says, and I noted this down, the God who says, here is my grace to receive, says in the same breath, here are my commands to obey. Two things. I have commands to obey. I have grace to receive. There's a balance between the two. And that balance between the two is what he speaks about. And in those Ten Commands, there's four directives, basically. And these are not mine because they are all starting with the same letter. But in the midst of these Ten Commands, the four great directives that one writer I was using through the week put it as this. Number one, to fight. Number two, to have fellowship. Number three, to have focus. And number four, to have forgiveness. So he sums up these ten commands in those ways. Fight, submit to God, resist the devil. These are practical things to take away and think about. So if I am realising that worldliness is a problem, I look to God for his grace. I yield my heart to him, deliberately, intentionally. I ask him for help. For his grace. And I submit to him. Submit to God. And I resist the devil. And as I submit to God. And I resist the devil. God's grace is being poured in. So I know it seems a fine distinction. But it's an important distinction. That it's not my resistance. Of the devil that will win the victory. But as I resist the devil. God's grace is poured in. And it's God's grace that enables the victory. 
Now that seems a subtle distinction, but it is a distinction. Because we need to engage God in our day-to-day life. We need to engage God in his grace and his power and his strength in his person in our life. Submit to him. Resist the devil. Now submission sounds like a kind of relinquishing, but here it means active allegiance. It's enlistment language. It means I am ready to stand up and submit to him and to live subject to his authority, his lordship. And I will resist the authority of Satan. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Fellowship. Cultivate fellowship with God. Draw near to him. This is maybe where most of us fall down. Draw near to him. It's always a challenging moment in a meeting when someone begins to talk about this sort of thing. How near do I walk to God? Cultivate a close walk with God. Speak to him in prayer often. Listen to him through his word often. Think about him during the day. Just have a closeness to him. Don't let him be distant from your thoughts. Don't be double-minded sinners. And here he's speaking about the need for focus. Purify your life. Do some spiritual pruning. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts. We have, I am sure I could speak for all of us, we could all do an inventory of our life and find stuff that shouldn't be there. I think all of us could do that. I think it would be a foolish person who thought otherwise. And it's probably a healthy thing. It is a healthy thing. I say probably just because it affects me as well as anyone else. It is a healthy thing. From time to time to do that spot check. And just readjust. In terms of righteousness and holiness and sin. We do drift into it. I drift into it. I'm sure you do the same. And our standards slip. And we need to just readjust them. Focus. Refocus. And then he says, be miserable. Well, that comes easily enough, you know, just be normal. Uh, be miserable. Uh, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to glory. What's he saying? It's not saying that you walk about not enjoying life, but he's saying it's the language of repentance. It's kind of Old Testament language of repentance. And it means just this. See, when you do find sin in your life, repent of it. Repent of it. Grace alone enables us to actually implement these things. And if you go down these short, sharp statements from verse 7 down to verse 10, he finishes up with this, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Humble yourself. So, so bring this all back, just as I finish, bring it all back to where we started. Where we started is that um, we shouldn't be surprised if we are involved in or subject to conflict. It's been going right right from the beginning. Right from the beginning. So that's not the issue. It's not pretending it doesn't exist. The issue is, okay, if it does exist, and if I'm involved in it, 
then I need to look at myself first of all. Look at myself. Then I need to consider whether I have adjustments to make in relation to worldliness. And perhaps my understanding of what worldliness is needs to change. And if it is the case that there needs to be work done there, then let us involve God in the process. That his grace might be poured in. That we might seek his help and not try and do this on our own. And not draw out the inner person. Which, to be frank, really is most of the problem anyway. But that the grace of God might be given to us. That God's grace may be poured in there. That we may have that strength and that desire and that persistence and that whatever it is we need from God to do that and to change it. And then, next week, he really gets to what is maybe the most problematic thing in Christian relationships today. Speak not evil one of another. Brethren. Well, he's back to brethren now. Back to brethren. Stop slandering each other. Say, oh, I thought this was only in our social media era where communication is so rapid and so invasive. No, actually, in the days before any technology, it seems, of communication that we have, they were still doing something. <coughs> the jungle drums were working quite well in James' day. So we're going to look at that next time. Let's just pray and give thanks for his word and seek his blessing upon it.